going into May. Uh, it's great to worship together. We are blessed today to have a guest with us all the way from Yeovil Community Church uh, in the southwest of England. And to be clear, my normal honorarium budget does not include uh, plane tickets from the United Kingdom, but Andre took it out of my salary this week, so it's covered. Just <laughs> kidding. Uh, that, was, that was a joke. Come on. Okay, all right. Uh, you guys are... I don't know what I'm going to have to do. I don't know what I'm going to have to do with y'all. Uh, so uh, anyway, but he was here for uh, different Jesus Collective events across Canada and one uh, coming up in the U.S. as well. Uh, I don't know if he's at that one, but he's in, he's in all. Okay. And uh, so he's a pastor of church in a local community there. Uh, he's passionate about whole community transformation and living out a more hopeful Christianity. Um, he's married to Rachel, and together they have four children and two grandchildren. Uh, loves sport, is a big Manchester United fan, um, and is the author of the, of the book Unknown, What If God Is Not Like That? He is currently writing his second book on a Jesus-centered vision of power and the call to disperse our power as well. And so uh, when I had the opportunity to have one of the guests come here, I sort of jumped and said, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to have you come here. I said, we are a neighborhood church, we are a small, messy church, and I tried to scare him off, and yet he's like, no, I would love to speak to your community. And so would you give Adam a warm welcome as he comes to share with us uh, this morning? Brother, we welcome you to Pilgrim. Glad you're here. Thank you. Let's see how that goes. Thank you so much. It is um, it's great to be here. It's my first time in Vancouver. What a beautiful city you have. Or maybe I just got spoiled because it doesn't sound like it is as sunny as it was yesterday the whole time. So I'm not sure. Maybe you fooled me. But um, yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I split my time now. I lead a church in the southwest of England and I'm also executive director of Jesus Collective. That's an interesting um, little mix. Um, doing this kind of international role and splitting my time and then just on the ground delivering church in the community, which is where church is always supposed to be um, practiced, right? We do this together in community. Um, when we, I've been leading the church there for 15 years. Um, I was one of those reluctant church leaders that kind of came into it a little bit kicking and screaming and anything but God, anything for you, God, but not, please don't make me lead a church. And yet here... And yet here I am. And I actually love it. Uh, we, it's a small town that we're part of. It's not the size of Vancouver. It's about 50,000 people. Um, and we, um, it's kind of in the middle of the English countryside. If you've ever seen an English TV show called Broadchurch, that's filmed in our area. It's kind of it's just very green, um, very beautiful, lots of little quaint villages and whatever. And then this fairly ugly town in the or city in the, in the middle called Yeovil. Um, we have beautiful beaches, we have all that sort of stuff, but it, we have all the same issues that you would find in any city. And when we launched church, uh, well, not launched church, church is 100 years old, when I took on leading the church, um, I kind of came in with two principles. I was like, you know, so we're going to work this out, but what if everyone's in? What if we don't define who's in and out? What if we don't set boundaries? What if we just say everyone's in? Everyone gets to be part of this. That's not a proclamation of who gets to heaven or not. That's not a proclamation of their theology or anything. Just a, what if we just go, this is for everyone. You're all in. You all get to be part of this. This is everyone's church. And, and then alongside that, we kind of did the thing where we said, well, yeah, but belonging's in the small. 
So you can come along on a Sunday, but you can be fairly anonymous on a Sunday. You know, we would have 300 whatever on a, any given Sunday. There's kind of five or 600 who would come on a regular basis. We have a lot of kids work. We have a lot of young people. We have every generation. So you can be fairly anonymous on a Sunday. So we go, so belongs in the small. Who are the people you're walking, sharing life with? Who are the people who are going to be there in a crisis? Who's going to know when you're not there? Who's going to laugh with you and celebrate with you and um, have fun with you? And who's going to grieve with you and mourn with you and share life with you and be there in those moments? So we kind of, these, these were our starting principles as a church. It's just so everyone's in and belongs in the small. How, let's see how that goes. And um, we also had this idea that this should be good news for everyone. I think my the church, the Christianity I grew up with, was really good news for a few, and really terrible news for everyone else. I like we just left talking about the terrible news, and we just told everyone about the terrible news. We're kind of going, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like good news. And we go, what if this is good news for everybody? How do we live that out? What if you know, if we, if we're in this city, then we believe God is involved and engaged and present in this city. If God is in this city, then this should be good news for everybody. Everybody should be blessed. I kind of set myself the goal, you know, if we, that if we were to decide one day that we're up and we're out, the church, we're going to leave our city, we're going to go, that our city would be, would notice first. And that they would be upset by that second. That they would value us. And over the years, we've kind of built that ministry. We've... Um, we now run a whole range of ministries in our city. We, we run a family crisis support program. Um, so we support maybe 200 families at a time. These families are referred to us by social services, by the police, by schools, by healthcare, as families who are in real crisis. Like maybe their children are being removed from them, or um, you know, there are lots of antisocial behavior and the police are involved someone's just been arrested or maybe there's just been or just layers and layers of chaos and these families get referred to us we support about 200 at a time for at least a year at a time um, it's quite a big program and it gets some amazing results because we do with and under and we empower we don't do stuff to we empower them we also do homeless support we do some really innovative homeless support so we're kind of key in the city around how to work with the homeless and we so we create space for them and we allow them to design the space we consult them when we want to paint or decorate or bring chairs in or whatever. We go, well, what would you like it to be? What colours are good for you? What colours are stressful for you? What colours are peace-giving for you and hope-giving for you? How do we design this space better so this is a more comfortable place for you to be? And what would you like to happen here? Do you want chess and board games? Do you want musical instruments? Do you want language teaching? Do you want what, what would you like? How can we resource you? And then we also bring professionals in. And we bring doctors in and... We bring mental health nurses and sexual health nurses and we bring um, counsellors and we bring housing specialists and we bring education specialists and we bring all these specialists and we go, these people are just going to be around and they might play chess with you, but if you want to talk to them about a health issue, we have consultation rooms over here you can use. And really innovative ways of doing support for the homeless because they're not going to show up at an appointment next Friday. But if a doctor's there right now and he's happy to talk now, yeah, let's have a conversation about it. So we do that work around homeless. We refugee resettlements. Any refugees that come in to our city, we're the agency that gets to welcome them, um, look after them, get them established, sort them housing, get them into education, get them into healthcare, get them into employment. 
We do all of that. We have about three or 400 refugees um, at the moment that we're working with, work with the United Nations on that, work with our government on that. We do medical support engagement and education engagement. We do housing programs. We do food banks. So with a food bank in the area, we, we do debt support. We do counseling. All of these things, we don't, some of these we don't directly do, but we bring in other churches and other organizations who do some of that stuff. We do schools programs around identity and mental health, and we're in our local schools running support groups, and we do early years work, and we do support with the elderly and around loneliness and engagement, and we do mental health, and, and we do a whole bunch of other stuff. It's a busy place. We always say Sunday's our quietest day. Sunday we just get to chill out and worship. The rest of the week, the place is packed. And there's people in and out, hundreds and hundreds of people every day. It's a busy place. And we talked about our, our values were around story, that we're part of a bigger story. We're part of the story of Jesus. And the center point of that story is the cross and the resurrection. But we're part of this bigger story. So we're part of something bigger than ourselves. And we're just the latest people to carry on this story and tell and understand and imagine what this story of hope and love and reconciliation looks like in Yeovil in the 21st century. And then we'll pass it on to the next generation. We're the latest in a long line of people. We, we believe about being connected and that we're disconnected in all these different ways. And if you look at Genesis, yeah, we're disconnected from God, which we all kind of were told about. But also in that story, we see a disconnection from each other. We see relational disconnection. We see an inner disconnection in our soul. We feel shame and we feel, we feel pain and we feel brokenness within and something's not working. There's a deep disconnection within us. And we, and we see in that story disconnection from creation. They're told, well, now you're going to have to work the land and it's going to have to you're going to have to it's going to hurt you and it's going to be a struggle there's a disconnection from creation there's a disconnection within ourselves there's a disconnection from each other there's this whole narrative and in genesis about now your relationships are going to be about power you know god says to the woman well now you know man is going to be the, the one in charge and you're going to desire him this isn't god's plan b going, well that me in communion with man that didn't that didn't work, so why don't I just put man in charge? That is, not, that is not what is going on there. What he's saying isn't, oh, plan B, that you have a go. He's saying, now all your relationships are going to have a power dynamic about them. There is a brokenness and a disconnect that is going on in your relationships. And all of that needs restoring, and we see this disconnection. And so our pursuit is to be reconnected in all those ways. So the community around us and the world around us can be reconnected, restored, and renewed in all those ways. We believe in that we are, the way of Jesus can't be lived in isolation. We believe um, that we are the hands and feet of Jesus that works out in our community. And we pull down the walls as we can pull down the walls because we have these values. And one of the values is being transformed or transformation. And in that we say, this isn't about whether you're saved or you're not saved. Are you baptized or are you not baptized? Are you in or are you out? We recognize that we are all on a journey of transformation, being transformed into Christ-likeness, moving towards Jesus at the center. And we invite you, whoever you are, however far away you are, wherever you are, to come and journey with us. So we pull down these boundaries and go, well, we're saved, and now you just need to be like us. Which isn't always, with all 
few respect, the greatest sales pitch that's ever been given. If you're really good, you could be like us. It doesn't always, doesn't, it's not the greatest sales pitch I think the church has ever come up with. Um, so actually, we go with, we're being transformed to have grace with us. But we invite you into this journey of transformation. And then we talk about that everything we do and create and say is an expression or should be an expression of who God is and what Jesus is like. These are kind of the values that we've worked out as our church, and this is what we're still working out. We have this recognition that Jesus is at the center, and if we can gravitate towards Jesus, if we can hold Jesus at the center, if we can make Jesus bigger at the center, then we can, we can become like him. And this seems to be quite important in Scripture. So we kind of we recognize that you know, we want to be more inclusive, but... The imagery we use around that is if you is imagery of a solar system. If you want to increase the gravitational field of a solar system, you don't make the sun at the center smaller. You make the sun at the center bigger. So it seems to me that we need to make Jesus at the center bigger. You go, but you might you might say, well, you've been a little bit Jesus centric here, Adam. What is what is that about? And I know you've probably already looked at this, but in Jesus' collective, we have this our, you know, first marker is God looks like Jesus and scripture is properly read through him. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. And I want to spend a little bit of time looking at that today. There's a few verses that we kind of would hang that on, or I would kind of hang that on, that we as a church have hung that on. Those few verses we go, this talks about that. Why is Jesus so important? Jesus is so important because Jesus is a revelation of what God looks like. You see, throughout history, throughout the Old Testament, but throughout all faiths, throughout all empires, throughout all civilizations, we have been grasping at ideas of what God is like reaching for glimpses and concepts and ideas and images. There's so much imagery and allegory. God is like a storm and God is like a fire and God is like a river and God is like a father and God is like a mother and God is like, like all of these images and it's all allegories because we're kind of reaching for ideas of what God is like and every faith is doing the same. Every civilization is doing the same. Even the atheist is defining the God that they don't believe in. We've all got an idea of what God is like. We're grasping at ideas. And then Jesus comes along. What the, what the New Testament tells us is Jesus comes along. And Jesus is the full revelation of what God is like. In Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Now, writer of Colossians is doing his very best with the language that he can reach. But language doesn't always take us or doesn't can't define God because it has limitations of our own understanding. And the, the writer here is doing 
very best to reach for these big ideas. Everything is in him and through him. He was before all things. All things are created in him. All things are held together in him. That's a mind-blowing statement. Jesus isn't just a guy who rocked up halfway through the story. He was there before it all began. He was involved in the whole thing. All creation is in him. Do you know, scientists are still baffled. You are made up of how many quintillion, zillion, whatever, atoms they choose to be you. Or they form you. We don't know why they get to hold, stay together to be you. And to be honest, they don't stay together for your whole duration. All the atoms that make you now are entirely different atoms that made you nine years ago. But you've got memories that go back beyond nine years. So isn't that a bit of a mind-blowing thing? Because there isn't a single atom that's still you, that was you then. I'll leave that one with you for, to think about this afternoon. It might mess with your head. But every single atom that conspires to form you, not one of them is alive. If we took you apart one atom at a time, we would be left with a pile of atomic dust. Not one of them is alive, and yet you're alive, and you can create, and you can imagine, and you can dream, and you can sing, and you can do art, and you can, and you can work with other people, and you, can, you have memories and ambitions, and you breathe and you love, and you carry hope. And we have no clue why. We do not know how or why that happens. You are a miracle. And Colossians says, remind, that's a nice thing to say to each other from time to time. You know you're a miracle. You're a walking miracle. They encourage each other with that from time to time because you are all walking miracles. And the writer of Colossians is going, those atoms hold together because of Jesus. Not just, not just the people who believe. Jesus holds you together whether you believe or not. All things are held in him. Not just you, all creation, all planets, all stars, whatever that matter is that they're still trying to figure out that holds all things together in the universe and they call it dark matter because we can't see it and we can't measure it and we can't, but we know it's there because there's no way this happens without it. Colossians says, Jesus. It's mind-blowing stuff. It's all in him. In Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. In the past, there were kind of these ideas and imageries and whatever of God, and people would kind of get glimpses and people would say stuff. And the prophets would speak to our, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I haven't got time today to go into how we read scripture through Jesus, maybe another time, but 
He is the exact representation. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. And I am convinced that Jesus' primary message when he was on earth was God's not like that. He came into a society and a civilization. He came into a culture. He came into the Jewish culture that was under Roman occupation with all sorts of Greek empirical influences that had been a history of being in captivity in the Babylonian Empire. I mean, there's a lot of mixing of cultures here. He's, and Jesus comes into this environment where you've got the Roman Empire and you've got the Jewish community and you've got the Greek influences and he comes into this place and everyone has ideas of what God is like. Not just the Jewish people, everyone. But those Jewish people were expecting God. Their idea of God was God's on our side and he's against them. So God's going to make us great again. When this Messiah comes, he'll make us great again and he'll destroy our enemies. He will make the temple great again. God has to be kept separate because God is holy. God only wants to hang out with the holy people. If you're not a holy person, God can have nothing to do with you. He will have nothing to do with the unclean. He will have nothing to do with the non-Jewish people. He absolutely hates the Gentiles. God is holy and has to be kept holy. God has to stay in the temple. If you see the face of God, you will die. These are the beliefs that they had about what God was like. And Jesus comes along and goes, you know, I'm really not like that. That is not who I am. And he starts hanging out with the unclean, the sinners and the tax collectors. He has tax collectors and sinners and people who've had a background of prostitution and he has all these people in his little network of travelers who travel around with him just being his disciples he has he has all these people who are traveling with him he has men and he has women he has he has that shouldn't be a thing he hangs out with all the wrong people he goes to all the wrong places and when he goes to the temple he isn't excited about it he's furious and he starts throwing tables around and wrecking the joint. They're going, this is not how this was supposed to go. This was not what the Messiah was supposed to do. We thought he was going to be really lovely about us and really angry about them. And then he starts healing like Gentiles and the centurion's daughter. And he hangs out with a Samaritan woman at the well and promises her. And she gets to be the person who goes to announce the Messiah is here. This woman of failed marriage after failed marriage after failed marriage is the person who Jesus goes, yeah, go tell them. My ministry can start now. Let's go. And she goes running in to the city to tell them. And the whole Samaria, city in Samaria is transformed by what Jesus is doing because of this woman. And Jesus is hanging out with all the wrong people. And he, he isn't excited about the temple. He goes in and he talks about how the temple needs to be overthrown and destroyed. Like, this is not going well. He loves the enemies. And then... Instead of people dying when they see him, invariably when Jesus encounters dead people, they start coming back to life. Like, this is all upside down. This is not how this is supposed to be. And this is the Jesus that we have to look at and go, that's what God is like. But it doesn't stop there. 
This is the really cool bit. In Colossians 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So Christ is fullness in bodily form, but then there's this suggestion here that we get brought to fullness too. Move on. There's this... There's this idea that we can be part of this. We aren't just followers. We aren't just participants. Like we aren't, we aren't just the privileged few who get to believe and then we're going to go to heaven when we die. There's this story, that's indication here. We can be, we can participate in that fullness. If you go to Romans 8.28, which I think is the next slide. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's what the verse says. But there's another little bit. It's not a continuation. It's another translation. So I've been teaching this for a little while, but I've not heard lots of people teach this. And then I was at a thing at Windsor Castle a month or two ago. And N.T. Wright was there, and he talked about this. And I was like, just, I knew it. He said that he had the same thing. He was in the Greek. It does not mean, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which is the verse we all know. Like, if you're having a bad day, if you're having a bad week, if you're going through some hardship, some Christian somewhere will rock up and go, Romans 8, I have a word for you, Romans 8, 28. God's going to work all things for good. And you're going, oh, thank you so much, but I'd love to punch you right now. Like, so, like, because it's just not the time, not the time. That's not what I'm feeling. Like, I mean, yeah, tell me, it's all, but not now, please, just shut up. Like, can be quite an annoying verse, but it's a, it's a gospel of privilege. You, God loves you. You're going to heaven. God's going to make sure everything's great for you. It's a gospel of privilege. What the Greek actually says, and I have anti-rights backing on this, what the Greek actually says, and it, and it will say, at the foot, in a footnote probably on your Bible, it'll say alternative translation. In all things, God works together with those who love him to bring about what is good. See, one of those is going, oh, God works for those who love him to make all things good for them. But the other one says God works in partnership with us to bring good in all situations, not just my situations. One of those gospels is bigger than the other. It's a bigger gospel. It's a bigger story. You know, there's this, I often refer to the gospel I grew up with as a titanic gospel. Not because it's huge, but because the Titanic was a ship that was built and it was all perfect when it was built and it was amazing and it was going to conquer the world and it was absolutely superb. But very quickly into the story, it went badly wrong. And then the whole story is how many people can we save before the whole thing goes down? And that's the gospel I was brought up with, that this was all created great once and very quickly in the story, chapter three, it went badly wrong. And the rest of the whole thing is about how many people can we save before the whole thing goes down? It's a Titanic gospel. But it's a small gospel. I think there's a much bigger story going on. And it's a story that talks about the reconciliation of all things under Christ. 
It's a story that says that all things are going to be renewed and reconciled and restored. It's a story that we get to participate in, not just be beneficiaries of. I grew up with a really small individual personalized gospel. If I was the last person, I was told on good authority that if I was the last person on earth, Jesus would have died for me. So I'm a pretty big deal. But I suspect you might have been told something similar. So, you see, when we get told a a small, personalized gospel, and we start thinking we're a bit special, and we're just glad that we're the special ones, born in the right culture at the right time, in the right place, with the right faith, with the right parents, with the right whatever it is, we just got lucky. And we've got our salvation, and we took it away in a back pocket. Like, a, have you ever played Monopoly? Yeah. yeah, you know that get out of hell free card. <laughs> jail free, get out of jail free. It's not the game changer, is it? Like, you don't get that and go, okay, guys, this game's over because I just got the get out of jail free card. No, but like it. It's not a game changer. It doesn't really change the strategy of how you play the game. You go, oh, okay, all the, all the financial caution is off. I'm just going for it because I got this back up. Like, no, it's like $50. It's like a nothing thing. I think that's sometimes how we treat our salvation. It'd be like a get out of hell free card that we took away in our back pocket for when we're going to need it. It doesn't actually change how we live our life. We are called to be participants in this gospel not just beneficiaries. We are called to join in, in God's kingdom, in our place, to live out these patterns and rhythms of love, to be people of hope. And he writes, says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the central character. Be drawn into participation in the gospel, not just spectators of the gospel. You know, I get asked sometimes, um, because I mean, we're not a small church, but we're not enormous, and we do a lot more than the sum of our parts, a little bit like all of us, right? If we're all just these collection of atoms, and yet we can do all this dreaming and thinking, we're, bit, we're more than the sum of our parts. And I think as a church, we're more than the sum of our parts. We do quite a lot in our community for the size of the church that we are. People go, well, how do you do that? And how do you get all the volunteers? And, and how, does it, how, do you, how do you make all this change? And I go, well, I get the volunteers by changing the story. So we, we live in this big story. And they go, well, so are you seeing lots of people come to faith? Are you seeing lots of people come into the church? And it's like, well, yeah, we do. But that's not why we do it, right? Because that's conditional love. If we're going to go, oh, well, go and give you food, but you need to hear a gospel message. That's conditional love. Right at the center of the gospel is unconditional love. So that's not the way to do it. I was like, no, we do this. I don't, we don't run these programs to populate the church. We run these programs to evacuate the church. We do this to get 
our community out into the community, our, ch our, our members, our church, out in sitting with the homeless person who's figuring out where their dry space is to sleep tonight and their next meal's coming from, with a single mum who's trying to navigate with her three children how to get through life and how to survive, with the addict who's trying to break their addiction, with the refugee who's traveled thousands of miles to come into our town with her two children, trying to find a place, trying to survive, desperately afraid because her husband's back in the homeland fighting. The Jesus we encounter in them is different than the sanitized Jesus we sing about on a Sunday morning. When we meet these people, when we serve these people, when we love these people, we encounter Jesus in them as much as we hope they encounter Jesus in us. We see a different Jesus. It's why we do it. 2 Corinthians 5, it says, So from now on, regard no one from a worldly point of view. We don't draw these boundaries, the in and the out, the good and the bad, the, whatever our boundaries are. We don't view anyone that way anymore. We once regarded Christ this way, but we don't do it any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He did not give us the ministry of waiting to go to heaven. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because we are reconciled, we are now invited to participate in the reconciliation of all things. We have the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself. The world. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. God has given us this ministry and he has committed it. He has entrusted us with this ministry. We are now participants in this. See, there is a power. There's a power thing here. There's this, um, there's this pattern that I see when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And it's this giving away, this including, this dispersing of power. Like Jesus, in Mark, book of Mark, we see, who knows the verse? Like, if you have faith, like, and you say to this mountain, if you have enough faith, you say to this mountain to be thrown in the sea, it'll be thrown into the sea. We know the verse, right? We sing songs about it. We all love songs about mountains moving and throwing our problems into the sea. We love those songs. Great songs. I love them myself. But he stood. Which mountain is he referring to? He stood looking in the Gospel of Mark at the Temple Mount. The whole religious system, if you have a, if you have a little bit of faith, you can throw the whole religious system into the sea. No one's written that worship song yet. There's a little tip for you. I go away around that one. It'll be a classic. It'll be huge. Can bring the whole religious system down. Like We love that stuff, right? No, we don't love that stuff because we quite like the religious system. But, but that's what he's saying. And then there's this whole dispersing. He goes, whatever you ask for in my name will be given to you. 
dispersal. You see, the business of the temple is you pay to pray. They've got a nice little business going on there. If you want someone to pray for you, you need to go and pay for it. And Jesus is going, whatever you ask for, any of you, just mention me. And your prayer will be answered. Temple aren't very happy about this. And then he goes a little bit further. He goes, as you forgive, so you're forgiven. He even says in John chapter 20, whosoever you forgive will be forgiven. Let's not go there. That's outrageous. So, but he says, as you forgive, so you're forgiven. Forgiveness now. Business of the temple, they made a lot of money. That's why he's throwing the tables over, because they were making all this money out of sacrifices and forgiveness. And Jesus is now going, oh, no, just forgive. Just learn forgiveness, practice. Jesus goes, you know what? This isn't a racket, a forgiveness racket. This is a forgiveness economy. As you forgive, so you're forgiven. Like, that's dispersal. Any of you can be forgiven. Just start forgiving. Whatever you bound will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Business of the temple. And Jesus goes, we're not, we're not centering that at the center anymore. This is dispersed to everyone anyone. And we know this. We see this happen at Pentecost. The ultimate dispersal of power to the everyone and the anyone. It's the Holy Spirit. We invite people to join in. We start, our starting point is everyone's in. How can we learn from each other? How can we be blessed by each other? How can we discover more about Jesus together? And can we all navigate, gravitate to Jesus at the center? Our, um, I talked about some of our values as a church. I just want to share our connected value, or part of our connected value with you. I think it's the next slide. It says this. As a church, we seek to be reconnected in every way we can. That's talking about with God, with each other, within myself, with creation. We seek to be reconnected in every way we can so that the world around us can be reconnected Restored, renewed in every way it can. You see, when we are reconciled, when we are reconnected, it flows from us and it starts impacting our whole community around us. This is the kingdom of God, it's contagious, it's not a strategy. It's a posture, it's a lifestyle, it's a rhythm. Transformation, reconciliation, revival, renewal starts with us. Where does God want us to be reconciled? Where does God want us to be reconnected and restored and renewed? And as we are, it will flow from us into our communities, into our workplaces, into our families, into our streets. Whatever it might be, we become the conduits of God's blessing, not just the recipients. We become pipes, not cups. This is who we're called to be. This is God's kingdom. This is the Jesus-centered way. Join in.
Amen. Should we pray? Can we stand and pray? Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you for the beautiful, loving, peace-filled, hope-filled, generous God that you are. And Lord, wherever we persist in our disconnection and our division in our prejudices in our resentments in our fear in our judgment we want to repent of that and we want to invite your spirit to do a work of reconciliation in us we want to invite your spirit to do the work of reconnecting and restoring and renewing in us. Us as individuals, us as a church, so that our families around us, our neighbors around us, our colleagues around us, our community around us can be reconnected and restored and renewed in every way possible. We want to be participants and agents in your kingdom. We want to be people who live Jesus-centered lives, lives that gravitate towards you. So we invite your spirit to do that work. Amen.